Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Mark chapter 7 as we continue our study in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 7, and our text this morning will be verses 14 to 23. Mark writes, After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if he goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, That which proceeds out of the man, that which is, is what defiles the man. For from within... Out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, fornication, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile the man. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we go to our text this morning. Heavenly Father, we again pray that you would take your word and illuminate it to us, prepare our hearts, make us willing to obey and to take what you have told us and to use it. I pray that you would help us to again be encouraged where we need to be encouraged, to be broken down where we need to be broken down and built up where we need to be built up. And so I pray this morning again that you will be glorified as your voice is heard through your word this morning. In your name, amen. Well, we've been awful hard on psychology. You've, you've heard me make several statements about psychology from the pulpit, and you're getting the idea that I don't like it. But there are two parts of psychology. There is one part, what we would call the science of psychology, and all psychology would claim to be science, but there is a part that's actually science. It's actually true science. For instance, if we take you and we sleep deprive you for three days, we start to, you recognize that you start to change. And in fact, you start to see things. You start to have, you start to see people. You start to have visions. You are not demon possessed. You are not crazy. You are sleep deprived. We put you to bed. We give you a nap. You wake up. The people are gone. <laughs> so we know that, that, that is, that's good and that's well. But where psychology gets into its problem is when it starts to have theories 
about humanity and theories on how to fix people's problems. Psychology in its very name is, is, is talking about dealing with the soul, but that's a spiritual issue. And the problem with psychology, it starts with man's theories about man. And so, unredeemed man studies unredeemed man to come up with an idea about man. And so you, you're starting at the wrong spot. And most of the psychology starts with this premise, man is good, man is good. There are a few brave souls who just say we're neutral. And so after all, if man is good and we see all this evil, where does it come from? It's God who come from outside of you. It's God who come from your circumstances. It's God who come from the fact that you are not having your needs met. So if you go to one, one person, he would tell you, well, here's your problem. Your family did not support you like they should. The reason you are like you are is because you were not told that you were loved and you were not coddled and you weren't, you weren't supported like you needed to. So after all, you're really not responsible for the way you are now and the fact that you don't love yourself like you should is really a, your parents' fault because they didn't love you like you should. Another one might tell you, well, people are good, but here's the problem. They actually see it in their environment. They see these, these awful things, and that influences them. Because after all, Johnny's violent because his dad was violent, right? It's his dad's fault. If Johnny had never seen violence and never watched TV and never heard any of the things that he hears in conversation, he wouldn't be violent. Because after all, he's a good boy. It's just... The problem is his environment is influencing him. And so it goes on and on and on where we start with a flawed view of man. Man is good. His problem is outside of him. So if we can control his environment, if we can control the things that happen to him, he'll be fine. Well, we're dealing here with a group in our passage today that kind of had that same, very same idea. They actually thought that they were good. The Pharisees thought, you know what? We are the chosen people of God. We've been circumcised. We, are, we have been chosen by God, and we are in right standing with him. And so as long as we maintain the status quo, we're going to be just fine because we're right with God. The only problem that could happen, of course, would come from outside. So if you were to get defiled from outside of yourself, then you wouldn't be worthy to be with God. Because after all, defilement, we talked about that last week. The idea of defilement means in a place where you couldn't fellowship with God, where you couldn't worship God, where you weren't in right standing with God. And so for them, they understood right off the hop, we're already good. We're already fine. We just got to keep from getting dirty. 
And so if we get dirty from the outside, if we happen to touch a dead body or if we happen to eat the wrong food or we don't wash our hands, then we need to be ceremonially cleaned and that will take care of that and we're in right standing with God again. Well, Jesus in our passage today here is really just going to blow that right up. He's going to blow that right up. And we're going to see in this passage that the problem is not the environment. The problem is not from outside of us. The problem is it comes from within us. The problem is unredeemed humanity is not neutral. He's not good. He's hostile to God. And he is, is corrupted because he is corrupt inside. And Christ is going to state that very clearly in our passage today and he's really going to blow up everything that they had been taught and everything that they believed as he goes through our passage this morning and so we'll simply see this morning Christ will state the the principle publicly and then he will explain it he will explain that principle that it's not what's outside of you, but what inside is the problem. He'll first do it negatively by telling us what doesn't corrupt us, and then positively what does corrupt us. And so this morning, when we're done, we should see that really legalism and anything that we do to try to please God doesn't make us actually in better standing with God. It's actually a misunderstanding of who we are. And it actually makes us, in many ways, rebellious to God because we refuse the righteousness that he gives us. And so this morning, we should be clear that the problem with humanity is not his environment, it's his heart. And so this morning, Christ simply starts in verse 14 and he states, the principle. After he called the crowd again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. For there's nothing outside the man who can defile him if he goes, it goes into him. But the things that proceed out of the man are what defile the man. Now Christ starts and he simply gives the condition to hear this principle. And he says... After he had called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. So what's going on here is that Christ has been out healing. He has been dealing with the crowd. And while they are in the midst of their busyness, the Pharisees and the scribes have come to Christ, and they said to them in the last passage, Look it, your disciples are eating with their hands unwashed. This, their ceremony unclean, how can they not keep the tradition of the elders? And so if we understand what's going on here, it looks like the, they have actually separated Christ from the crowd. Whether they have gathered around him in such a large group that the crowd can't get near him, or whether they, the crowd is backed off as they see the confrontation. And so they, Christ turns and addresses the scribes and Pharisees' concern. And he tells them that their problem is that they honor him with his lips, but their hearts are far from them. They have taken their tradition and they have taught it in, in as, as if it were the doctrines of Scripture, and then they have taken their traditions and they have overridden Scripture with it. And so Jesus, after really scolding them, now turns to the crowd 
and calls them back. He summons them. He, every, this word is used every time where Christ is going to make a pronouncement. It was used in 6-7 when he called his disciples to himself to send them out. And he summons them to himself and he, and he calls the crowd. and He says, come here. I want you to hear this. Listen up and understand. In other words, what I'm about to tell you, you need to listen to. What I'm about to tell you, you need to understand. I, I don't want you just to hear the words. I want you to understand the words because what I'm about to tell you is important. What I'm about to tell you is life-changing. And we will see ultimately this principle here is heaven or hell. And he's really calling them and saying, this may be hard for you to accept, but I want you to hear it. You need to hear this because this is for your good. And then he says this, there's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of a man are what defile him. Bang! Can you imagine? This is against everything that the Pharisees have been teaching them. This is going against hundreds of years of tradition. We talked about it last week, how they had built all of these walls around the law so you didn't break it. And for them, they understood that you need to be ceremonially clean. After all, it was in the law. God had given them these, some ceremonies that they needed to clean, keep themselves clean from. They could be defiled by different foods. And here, here is Jesus telling them, actually, that's not true. So what is going on here? Is Jesus contradicting the rest of Scripture? What is he doing here? Well, God had given the, the, the ceremonies and the ritual cleansings to Israel as a picture as a, as a practical picture of the necessity of them cleaning themselves. He had given it to them, but they had misunderstood what it was given for. They had taken the outward manifestations of these ceremonies, and that had become what was important, rather than the thing that they were to be depict was is that they needed to be cleaned on the inside and they need to be cleansed from their sin not from the outside but the inside and so these these all these ceremonies pointed to the very same thing that you had to be right before God to worship him you had to be in right relationship with him and you needed to be cleansed so you can imagine, as Jesus said, that this is like a shot across the bow because everything that they've been taught by the Pharisees is all of the laws on top of the law on top of the law. And all of these rituals that they had to go through. In fact, they had so many laws. They had so many little ceremonies, things that they, they had to do that they invented another little phrase that they did. And it was, it was the idea of, was this. It was called... It, the idea was, I won't say what it was called because I'm losing it off the top of my head. But the idea was this. It was, it was called a phrase of intent. So I could get up in the morning and say, I intend to keep the law. And if I said that in the morning, I really didn't have to keep all of the law because my intent was to keep it. Pretty good. Don't get any idea, kids. So... 
they, they had this idea where they, they couldn't even keep all of the laws because there were so many of them on top of the law. They could not keep their own ceremonies. And here they, they, they continue to teach this until it became part of the fabric. And it was, it was now their tradition so strong that can you imagine when Jesus said this, how shocking it would have been. They would, they would, it, would, it would be like telling you that the Trinity isn't true. You'd be just like, what? What? Totally shocking. But the sad thing is, is that, you know what? It really shouldn't have been a shock to any Jew. It really shouldn't have been a shock to any Jew. There was already hints in their law that God was not interested on the outside, but on the inside. Deuteronomy 10.12 records, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord the God with your heart and with your soul. And to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I have commanded you today for your good. So here's this implication, right? There are terms here. There's not talking about ceremonies. We're talking about what? Love, right? Fear with all your heart, with all your soul. He says down in verse 16, listen to this. So circumcise your heart and stiff, you, stiffen your neck no longer now here's the clue what was a sign of the covenant with Abraham circumcision what did every self-respecting Jew have male Jew have circumcision here's the sign of the covenant and God is clearly telling them I'm not interested in the outward physical manifestation of this Circumcision was to be an outward sign of something that had happened on the inside that their heart was circumcised and set apart to God. The teaching was there. Every Jew should have remembered the story of Samuel as he looked for a king to replace Saul. God said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. They should have known. They should have seen this, but they had hardened their hearts to the point and added tradition to the point where they missed it. So Christ in some ways, starts with this stunning statement, a statement that probably shook them to their roots. In fact, we'll see later on, it was hard for them to even comprehend. Then he says in verse 16, which a lot of our translations don't have, if anyone has ears, let him hear. This is probably not in the original manuscript, but it's certainly consistent with what Jesus says, right? If you have ears, let him hear. In other words, if you, if you have been given ears, listen to what I'm saying. Hear me. Open your spiritual understanding. 
Then he begins to explain this parable, first negatively. When he left, had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. This might be a parabolic statement, but it's really hard to believe that this is a parable that's hard to understand. In other words, when you read it, there's nothing here that's cloaked in mystery. There's nothing that, that is difficult to understand in the fact that it is, it is quite clear. If I said to you, the Holy Spirit is not God, you don't go, I don't, I, 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 that's really, I don't understand that. What you say is, did he just say that? Did he really just say that? Because that makes no sense. I can't believe he said that. And so that's what's going on here. It's not, as if, it's not as if there's some deep hidden meeting that is outside of the view of, of, the, of the hearer. It is the fact that they are what? They can't believe it. This is against everything that they have taught. They are so ingrained that when they hear it, they're like, what? This cannot be. Explain it. There must be something that we're missing because what you said doesn't make sense to us. And that is what the disciples are doing here. They're saying, surely you must have misspoke. Surely there must be a deeper explanation that we're not getting because this is against everything that we have taught, everything that's been ingrained into us since a small child. His, his disciples questioned him about the parable. Mark is being kind. Remember, Mark is what? Giving us the memoirs of Peter, right? The other gospels record that it was Peter who asks, he's the leader, he's the one who's impetuous, he's the one who's impulsive. Lord, what do you mean? And he said to them, Christ, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into a man from the outside cannot defile him? Christ responds with, are you so lacking understanding? Are you so slow? Are you so spiritually dull that you don't get this what did I say that's a mystery here you guys have followed me from almost day one you have had more teaching than anyone else you have seen my miracles you have seen me casting out demons you have been there you are the in crowd you've been taught all of the parables you've been given ears to hear why is it that you don't understand this and in some ways You've got to be feeling that Christ and his humanist was going, what is wrong with these guys? How, how much more clear can I be with them? How much more can I teach them? I mean, Christ is, pro is less than a year from the cross at this point. Time's getting short. These guys aren't getting it. How discouraging it would be that he continually teaches and, and, and gives them spiritual light and they are just not getting it I mean humanly speaking you think that at this point you would be getting desperate right we got eight months to the cross these guys are going to be the big guys to lead the church they can't even get a simple statement straight well God didn't give up on his disciples and I'm glad he doesn't give up on us either right we don't always get it we don't always see the truth that is so plain. Sometimes we have to have it explained. Sometimes 
we need more light. So Jesus simply repeats what he said before. Do, not, do you not understand that whatever goes into a man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach is eliminated. And Jesus is saying, look, you're missing the point. You've missed the point all the way along. It is not the food that is defiling the people. Right? You were worried about hand washing. We're going to go a little deeper. We're going to talk about eating food. Food is not the issue. It's not the kind of food that, that actually defiles you. And he says, I'll, I'll tell you why. When you eat food, it goes into your digestive tract. It, do go, it, doesn't go into, it doesn't morally affect you at all. It doesn't go into your, the center of your mind and your will. It goes to your stomach. It bypasses your heart. We're not talking about this heart. We're talking about your mind and your will. And he says it doesn't touch it. You eat food. It gives you energy. Your body digests it. And then it leaves the body. It goes down the sewer. In other words, there's nothing that touches you spiritually when you eat food. I'm going to say sometimes uh, it seems like a spiritual experience when we have lunch together. But the food itself does not defile you spiritually. But you're going to say, but I don't understand that. Because listen, when they touched the food before, it says they got defiled. So what is going on here? He's pointing out this. It wasn't that the food itself was spiritually defiling. There was nothing, nothing wrong with the food. In fact, it would have been fine to eat if it hadn't been forbidden. The problem was it took disobedience to eat the food. Right? You'd have to be dis willfully disobedient to eat that food. So the problem wasn't was what that was spiritually defiling was the act of eating it on purpose. It was not the fact that you were actually the food itself defiled you. And so you can eat any kind of food you want. You can eat good food, great. You can eat food that makes you sick, right? You may throw up, it may kill you physically, but it does not pollute you morally. It is not sinful. And so he says, listen, it's not what goes in your stomach that defiles you because it doesn't touch you spiritually. Now Mark adds this parenthetical statement and Mark is not one to make a comment in scripture very often and this is one of those times where he makes an editorial note and he says thus he declared all foods clean thus he declared all foods clean Now what he is not saying at this point is that Jesus abdicated the law and said that it was no longer in effect for the Jews Okay, he's not, he's not saying that he, he said, okay, from this day forward, don't worry about what you eat. Jesus actually said, do you think that I have come to abolish the law of prophets? I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill it. Christ did not come to get rid of the Mosaic law in his life here on earth. He came to fulfill it. 
It w- and once he fulfilled it, then the Mosaic law was set apart. So Christ isn't saying to everybody at this very moment, go ahead, eat whatever you want. Mark is looking back in time. He has the privilege of hindsight. He's got the privilege of sitting with Peter. And what did Peter have? Do you remember what Peter did? Peter had that nice vision in Acts chapter 10, right? Where he said, where God appeared to him, let down the blanket with all the living creatures. And he said, Peter, take eat. And Peter said, no, Lord, I, I can't eat that. That's, that's, not, that's not good. I've never eaten it, and I won't. And God said, take eat. For what I have cleansed, you need to eat. And this was a hard concept for the early church. It was a hard concept for the disciples. Even in Acts chapter 15, there was still, at the Jerusalem council, there was still that, that question of, of eating and what could be eaten, what couldn't be eaten. And people wanted to hang on to these laws. They wanted to hang on to these eating laws. And Mark simply declares, looking back, we see now the seeds of what was going on. Christ is actually declaring, there's coming a time when you can eat anything you want. The Mosaic law will be removed, recognizing that it was never the food itself that corrupted you. It was the disobedience in eating it that corrupted you. So Christ is simply illustrating to us, Mark is simply declaring to us that the church, there will come a time after Christ's death where the church will be able to eat all of the restricted food that Israel was not allowed to eat. So here's the thing that we need to draw from this. It is not our environment that pollutes us. It is not the things outside of us that will actually make us sinful. There can be a tendency for us to start to think that it is our environment that's the problem. And we can start to to think that it's not our fault. I may have gotten angry at the children, but it was really their fault. I asked them to clean up and they didn't, right? We start to want to put walls around ourselves just like the Pharisees and we say, you know what? We've got to keep ourselves from bad influences. So we start to guard the door and we start to, we start to keep the world, we try to keep the world away, right? We get like, some of the Hutterites, we get our little community and, and nobody's allowed to come in. We think that if we send our kids to Christian schools and homeschool them, that somehow we'll be able to protect them from the, uh, all of the depravity that's going out there and our children have a better chance to be saved and our children have a better chance of going on to be good Christians. Now, I'm not saying that it's not good to be prudent. I'm not saying that it's not good to limit the exposure to the world. I'm not saying that we don't understand the biblical principles that um, we are, that uh, bad morals corrupt, bad company corrupts us. But what we need to understand is that the problem with our children, the problem with us is not our environment. And we can sanitize everything around us 
But we're going to find out, just like James said, what is the source of quarrels among you? What comes from what? Within. And so we can do all of these things to try to protect ourselves and insulate ourselves. It's of no value. It doesn't make us any more safe. It doesn't keep us from sin. There's another side to this. There's nothing that we can do that will earn God's favor and make us right in front of him. Church history is full of people who tried. Remember Martin Luther? He, he used to spend hours and hours in prayer. He used to lay on the cold floor, right? He used to deprive himself of food. One of his rituals was to lay in the snow and pray. He thought somehow if he beat his body and made his body submit, that somehow he could overcome sin. He could somehow make himself pleasing to God. We need to recognize that there's nothing that we can do that will make us pleasing. There's no ritual. There's nothing that can make us acceptable to God. It doesn't matter how much you pray. It doesn't matter how many times you go to church. It doesn't matter how, much, how many times you help your neighbor. None of those things in and of themselves on the outside make you pleasing with God. You can beat yourself with a whip. You can do all those kinds of things. None of those are actually what? Removing sin. And so we must recognize that we are in need of something from outside of us, from someone else, from Jesus Christ. So he says it's not from without you. It's actually, he now says, this is what corrupts you. It's from within. And he was saying that which proceeds out of a man, that is what defiles a man. Then he gives us a list of 12 things here. And then he says, this what comes from inside a man defiles him. Really what Jesus is describing here is what we call total depravity. Now total depravity does not mean that you're as sinful as you can be, but rather that every single part of your humanity has been corrupted by sin. When you were born, you were born in Adam. You were born with a sin nature, and every part of you was born corrupt. Your emotions are corrupt. Your sense of love is corrupt. Your sense of right and wrong is corrupt. Your sense of justice is corrupt. Everything about you is corrupt. Your mind is corrupt. Which means that every single part of you is not functioning as it should. That means you can't come on in your own to understand what true love is. You can't understand what true justice is. You can't understand what is truly right because you are fallen. And because of that, whatever comes out of you is now going to be what? Corrupted. It has to be. If you have a well that has E. coli in it, what happens? You drink it, what? It's corrupt. It continues to go. So you, whatever proceeds out of your heart, is corrupted. It's evil. That's why he says, proceed the evil thoughts. This is an umbrella. This is what's coming out of your heart, are evil thoughts. They are against God. They are wicked. 
And then he lists here six actions and six attitudes that come out of a wicked heart. He says, adulteries. In other words, married people who are having illicit affairs other than their partner. Fornication, any kind of sin, sexual sin that can take place. Murderers, those who kill others. 1 John 3.15 tells us it's even those who hate others. Thieves, those who steal from others. Covetous, an insatiable craving for what belongs to another. Wickedness means really malice. The idea is simply to be mean to other people. A deliberate act of meanness. Deceit. This word refers to cunning maneuvers designed to ensnare someone from personal advantage. It has the idea of someone trying to work undercover to bring someone else down. Sneaky, deceptive people fall into this category. He says, livaciousness. The word refers to unrestrained, shameful behavior. It looks at the blessings of another and desires them for itself. It is envious. Sorry, I, I skipped a line. I will do what I please, and I do not care about anyone, what anyone thinks. Livacious, evil eye, desiring envious of others, blasphemies, defaming others, people directed at either God or man, gossip, cursing, fall into this category. Pride, boastful exalting of oneself. It is an attitude that says, look at me, see what I have done. No one is good or as great as I am. This is an over bearing attitude that is the opposite of humility and then he finishes it with foolishness the word refers to those who are morally and spiritually desensitized they cannot see their sins neither can they sense the Lord's working in around them with this kind of person there's no spiritual illumination there's no spiritual discernment they do not know God and there's no desire to know him and Jesus is saying listen this is what comes out of the human heart. This is the problem. Because these evil thoughts are in the heart of man. This is his nature. He, and these things are the things that come out of him. And these defile him. Because these actions and these attitudes are coming from a heart that is already defiled. And he says, here's the problem. The reason that you are not in right relationship with God. The reason you are not in right relationship with others, the reason that you sin is not your environment. It's the fact that you have a sinful heart and a sinful nature. Now remember, Jesus is speaking to the, to the crowd here. He's speaking to unbelievers here. And he is saying to them, listen, your problem is not trying to get right by God, with God by doing ceremonies don't think that you are right with God because of who you are you think because you're Pharisees and you're Jews that you're good with God he says forget that and he's basically saying to us don't don't believe because you're raised in a Christian home or you go to church that you're right with God either the problem is is the heart these these are the things that defile these things are moral these are the moral actions that God judges 
You'll always see God judging in Scripture, not just because you're in Adam, but He judges you according to your works. And these are the outworkings of the sinner whose nature by nature is hostile to God and his actions follow his heart. Jesus says, all these things proceed from within and defile the man. This, this is the problem. It's in you. If you're an unbeliever, he says, this is you. So the problem, the solution to this problem is not ceremonies. It's not trying to please God in your own effort. What you need is a new heart. This is a heart problem and you need a new heart. And Jesus is saying, here's your problem. You think you're right with God. You think your ceremonies make you right with God and you don't recognize that you've got a heart problem and the ceremonies are not making you right with God. You need a new heart. You need to be restored. You need your sins forgiven. And Jesus continually has called on them to believe in him. He came preaching a message of repentance and the kingdom. And he says, listen, believe in me. I am the Messiah to come. I am the one that was written about. I am the one who will pay the price for sin. I am the one through whom you can have your sins forgiven. And that comes through believing in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, we know that behind the scenes that it is God the Father who is calling and calling His own to Himself and no one can come outside of Him calling Him. And so what is necessary is for to be born, to be born from above, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, to be given a new heart so that you might be restored to Christ. Ezekiel 36, 25 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from your uncleanness and from your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Even in the Old Testament, God is indicating that he, salvation comes as God gives you a new heart. And so today, if you see yourself in, the, in those shoes where you see the sin coming out of you, you have never trusted in Jesus Christ. And it seems impossible for you to be obedient and to love him. Cry out to him for salvation. Cry out to him to give you a new heart. Believe in Jesus. Trust in His finished work on the cross. Believe that you can do nothing to save yourself, but it is by His grace. If you do, He will come and He will accept you. The question now becomes, I'm a, I'm a believer. I still sin. What's going on? How is it that I'm still sinning if I've been saved? Where is all that stuff coming from? I thought 
Corinthians told us that I was a new creation, that I've been given a new heart, then how is it that I still sin? How is it the fact that I'm still struggling with this? Maybe I'm not saved. Well, Scripture tells us that we have been made new, that we've been given new spiritual sight where we can now choose to do righteousness, where we can now see God for who He is, where sin is no longer our master. But we're also told that we are left in, in a physical human body that is unredeemed, that is still susceptible to sin, that is still has the desires of the flesh. And so there is this battle, Paul says, in his members that is going on. And this new orientation, this new creature doesn't like the sin. He wants to follow after God. But there's still this unredeemed flesh that is left. And when we're made new, we are not made new completely mature. And what I, we're not completely full grown in other words when you get saved and God makes you new he does not download all of the information about himself to you he doesn't just say here you are full grown off you go he creates you new but you are you are almost like a child and you have to learn the word of God you have to learn what God expects from you you have to learn the strategies of Satan and you have to be sanctified you have to start to grow spiritually this is what Peter talks about about being strengthened in the inner man and so until our inner man is strengthened our flesh has the ability to control our lives it has the ability to cause us to sin and so our goal is to be so spirit-controlled and to know the Word of God and to study and to be sanctified by the truth that we are strengthened to the point that when our flesh rises up, we in the power of the Holy Spirit and the knowledge and the sanctification of His Word is strong enough to resist. And part of this is getting to know Jesus Christ to the point in seeing the glory of Jesus Christ that when we see Him, He becomes so desirable that when sin promises us pleasure, we say, no, nothing is as great and wonderful and glorious as Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we can look at this and we can say, if I fill my mind with the Word of God and the truths of the Word of God and I meditate on it and I obey it, I, I don't have to, to sin. I don't have to be controlled by sin. I have victory over it. And the good news is Matthew twelve thirty five tells us that out of the good heart produces good things. You've been created with a new heart. When it is controlled by the Holy Spirit, when it is filled with the Word of God, you can produce good fruit. That's good news. We have victory in Jesus. And so this morning, as we have looked at this passage, we see that the problem is not external, it's internal. And if, if you're an unbeliever here today, you need a new heart. You need to come to Jesus. You need to give him a new heart. If you're a believer today, you need to develop new habits. You need to retrain your human mind that comes with all its bad habits, all its bad thinking, and have it changed by the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit 
so that you could be pleasing and in fellowship with God. Beloved, let us not get caught up in trying to please God in our own strength by trying to do things that we think are pleasing to Him, things that seem spiritual on the outside. But let us be renewed on the inside, continually growing, continually seeing the glory of Jesus Christ, continually having our hearts filled with his word and his truth that we might produce good fruit. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for its richness. I pray that we would never be like the Pharisees who thought they were righteous enough for you, who thought they could earn their favor before you. I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that does not have a new heart, that you would give that to them, that you would open their eyes and be merciful to them, that they might see you for the first time for who you are. And I pray this morning that we would be those who fill our minds with your word and its truths, that we would build our convictions and our character upon it, that we might produce good fruit for you. We thank you that you have provided so great salvation for us and that forgiveness is found by grace in you, in your name, amen.